June the 19th, 2016, lecture discussion number 244 on the Book of Romans, special Father's Day edition. I worked hard on the Father's Day part. And by the way, you folks on the Internet, same shirt. I've repeat. You were asking. They, they do. They ask. When is he going to repeat shirts? I've done it. This is it. There's another lecture with this shirt. Same tie. Everything's the same. Different haircut. Might be the same pants. Same socks. I'm pretty sure about that. Shoes. We have limited uh, budgeting for clothing allowance for me. <sighs> okay. I am aware that the book of Romans does not seemingly be the, t- the focus of the lecture. I say 244 lectures on the book of Romans and people take issue with that. They say, no, no, no. You're running all over the place. It's not really Romans. But I submit that it is, and uh, it is, in fact, the focus. I hope it is obviously uh, more obvious today than typical. But I submit Romans 4, 1 through 5, Romans 9, 1 through 33, and Romans 11, 5 through 32. That's where I'm at. does not necessarily, it's not overt, but it's certainly there. And they, that is the concrete and the number five rebar, if you will, for our current structure where we are today. And I should say this one more time. I don't say it enough. The book of Romans or the lists in the book of Romans um, is the reason that Romans is often called the Leviticus of the New Testament. You begin to see lists in Romans. If you look for them, you'll see them also in Leviticus. So this is the concrete, the foundation of where we are. And right today, it's Matthew 9, 20 through 26. Let me put this on the board. I have a black dry erase marker sent all the way from Japan by Richard, and now all I have to do is figure out how to refill it. He said he gave me refills. I just haven't I haven't uh, investigated how to do that yet when I can go to a different one. So let's go ahead and put where we are today. We are at Matthew 9, 20 through 26. We are at Luke, and this is in your bulletin today, and we read it last week, 8, 41 uh, through 56, and eventually we get to Mark 5, uh, 25 through 34. All of that is the two daughters, and all of that has to be read simultaneously in order to get through that. And if you haven't been here for a while, and who could blame you, it was 82 degrees last week, daylight until midnight. That was fantastic. And this is the time that uh, we Alaskans, for those of you listening by Internet or watching by Internet, exhaust ourselves. We gorge on the sunlight. We have to. It is a survival instinct. But as you know, corresponding to the lovely Lori's birthday, it's now the first day of winter. That's true, because the days are getting shorter now. Right? When does that start? I say it's so. It must be so. Okay, it's coming in a couple of days, Tuesday. But that Tuesday, first day of winter, it's over. Get used to it. Where was I? Matthew 9, 20 through 26. Mark 5, 25 through 34. Luke 8, 41 through 56. This is the two daughters I have two daughters, and Christ calls them both daughters. Very important to note that. 
So I have the two daughters, and that is where we are. One of them, of course, has been bleeding for 12 years, and I call them the two 12 daughters, just to make it obvious. One has been uh, bleeding for 12 years, is unclean, and is reaches out and touches and grabs a talit, a blue tassel on the bottom of the talit of God, or the talit of Christ, same thing, right? And is cleansed. The other is is dead and is wrapped in the talit and the tassels and is resurrected. One is cleaned and the other is resurrected, Okay. And we landed here, obviously, because of Numbers 15, 32 through 41, which is the man gathering wood, or the wood gatherer, or the gatherer, if you wish. And he is a ominous figure in Scripture, the man gathering wood. Immediately after his execution, blue tassels are installed by God. So that is how we get from the daughter, or from, that's how we got from the gatherer to the daughters. The daughters are prominent in that story as the blue tassels that are installed by God as a result of the man gathering wood who was executed for what he was doing. And that becomes an incredible mystery that I believe absolutely needs to be solved. You need to know at least that the daughters and the wood gatherer are related. They're the compliments, the Old and New Testament compliments. So we begin to note that uh, also we went from Numbers 15, 32 through 41 to Deuteronomy 21. I don't have room to put that on there. 18 through 22, 12. Because this is where we find the rebellious son. So we have the gatherer and the rebel. Both the gatherer and the rebel at the conclusion of what it is that they are addressing in Scripture. We'll, we'll solve that as time goes by. But after the gatherer, after the rebel, we have the installation of blue tassels. We get those tassels with the two daughters. That's the triangulation, if you will, for how we get to where we are. The rebellious son followed by a detailed explanation of the meanings of the blue tassels. The gatherer of the wood is followed by the installation of. He is the one that results in the blue tassels. So we note the consistent template. The man gathering wood, blue tassels. The rebellious son, blue tassels. The two daughters, blue tassels. And we begin this association now between the three groups, if you will. The daughters, the gatherer of wood, and I'll go ahead and put wood here, and the rebellious son. But primarily, these two are both executed, and immediately following that is blue tassels. So, we have to make that association and figure them out. They are sympathetic to one another, interwoven, intricately connected. Both commit a capital offense. Both require that the entirety of the nation of Israel attach blue tassels to the talits. The prayer shawls, if you will. Every man must have these tassels now attached to his talit because of the gatherer of wood and the rebellious son. And that is Numbers 15.38 and Deuteronomy 22.12. Immediately, the obvious question, right? Ask the immediate obvious question as opposed to the most obvious of the obvious questions. What is shared by these two men? 
Did they do the same thing or did they do two things individually that become a whole? What component in each circumstance is at a level of such wickedness that each man is summarily, I can barely say that, needs soda. I have an execution because of what they did. God says, can't do anything but kill them. Now, that's a humanistic way of approaching it, but you understand, I hope. Whenever this kind of situation arises, especially in the case of the rebel son, specifically he is identified as rebellious. Who is he rebellious to? Now, some would say his parents, but the parents are just simply the intermediary, if you will. They're just the conduit. They're the pathway. He is described as rebellious, and he's also described as the evil. This guy's got the evil attached to him. God said, we must, you must as a nation remove the evil. And all of Israel in both cases has to hear and fear what they have witnessed. Deuteronomy 21, 21. That language invokes who? The evil. All of Israel has to fear. Remember what happened here. That language invokes Antichrist typology consideration. The man gathering wood must surely be put to death. Numbers 15.35. Whatever evil these two guys are doing, it's extraordinary. It's pegging the needle here. It's a, it is a grave wickedness. And Israel must remember the man gathering wood for all other generations. And they also have to remember harlotry. Something about man gathering wood not only has to be remembered, but it is assigned to the inclination that Israel has to uh, harlotry, or if you will, paganism, Numbers 15, 38 through 39. And again, that adultery, that paganism, lifts up the specter of Antichrist typology, which I think is unmistakable and cannot be ignored. So ask some more questions. We've asked this a bunch of times. By now, I hope you've begun to think about it and formulate your own answer, your own position. You will never remember my positions, by the way. People ask me all the time, why don't you just tell us what you think? Because you won't ever remember what I think. You will remember what you think. That is how human beings are designed. I don't remember what you think either, so don't be offended. I'm not offended. Well, I'm a little bit offended. Not much. What was the purpose for the wood? I have an extraordinary evil man that raises up an antichrist context, and he wants wood. What's he intending to do with the wood? Let me ask it another way. Who's he going to kill? Why is he going to kill him? What's his choices? What's in the text where you can figure out who he's going to kill? He's going to kill somebody. By the way, so is the rebellious son. That's your first connectivity. Both of them are intended, they have a premeditated murder plan. The man gathering wood carries with him the Leviticus 24, 15 through 17 sentence of blasphemy. He's stoned to death. So he is sentenced not with 
with intent to kill, but he's also sentenced to a death because of blasphemy. What specific blasphemy? How is this so? With respect to the rebel, same question. Who is he going to kill? What's your choices in the context? Do you remember when we read it? There's elders of Israel. Was he going to kill the elders of Israel? His parents. His parents acted as the prosecution. His parents brought this man in front of a tribunal and brought the evidence that he was extraordinarily dangerous. That's remarkable behavior. I watch all the time these shows of these people that uh, that are... Uh, very, very wicked murderers, because the mindset interests me in some regard. Criminal mind, the criminal mind uh, uh, is something that I think everyone should have some, some understanding of, because you need to know it when you run into it. There are lots of people with criminal mindsets. Not all of them are criminals, but you can recognize that mindset, and it helps you avoid things that are uh, dangerous to you. There is no greater tragedy as a pastor in the chair that I sit in to find some woman who has married a man with a criminal mindset. Happens a lot. A lot more than you wish. Begin to understand it. One of the things they always do is they're pathological liars. They cannot stop themselves from testing whether or not you'll believe them. So they constantly lie to you. You have to be very well aware of a criminal mind. It's not normal. It's not a normal mind. It's, a, it's an evil mind that is chosen to be evil. Okay, that's has no relationship here in that sense, but let me bring it to you. The father and the mother are bringing evidences against their own son. Most of the time, the father and the mother defend their own sons, don't they? You will see a son who has murdered his family. A family annihilator is what they will call it. And the mother and the father are the... Or the father will kill the mother and the children will declare the father innocent and the evidence is overwhelming. It is rare to watch one of those situations where, where the family goes, yeah, he did it. Most of the time the family supports them. Here is a situation where the mother and father have decided that this, this person, their son, how old do you think he is, by the way? You have to recognize that he cannot be young. They would not have executed him if he were young. How old is he? You study Jewish thought processes. He's going to be a man in minimum 30 years old and likely older. But the parents have recognized that this is a dangerous, evil man, and they bring him, and they bring the evidence against their own son. And he is executed and declared accursed, and he is hung publicly. That's amazing. He's called the evil, and he is also, he is called accursed, and he is hung. And that's something that the rebel, or the rebellious son, shares with Judas, as we've discussed before. And this verse is also applied to Christ. You'll find that in Galatians 3, 13 through 14. Clearly, there's a great mystery here with the rebellious son. Great mystery. 
Deuteronomy 21:18 through 23 has a connection to Galatians 3:13 through 14. The only other example that I can give you that I think reaches that level where I not only have it applicationally towards a towards Judas or an antichrist, I have it also applied to Christ in a in a way that we have to figure out how it fits. You see a little bit of this in Psalm 22, as you know, but not with the Antichrist component. The other place that is like this is Zechariah 11:12 through 17. That is where the idol shepherd, not, not, let me put it, let me spell it for you. I-D-O-L for those of you on the internet. The idol shepherd throws the 30 pieces of silver in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the good shepherd throws the 30 pieces of silver. Who threw? Who was the idol shepherd in the New Testament? That's Judas. He fulfilled Zechariah 11, 12 through 17 by throwing those 30 pieces of silver. In, the, in Zechariah, the good shepherd does it. The good, in other words, I have the Christ and the Antichrist, and I have this situation occur. And I have to explain it. I have the same thing with Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 23 and Galatians 3, 13 through 14. So it's a fa- fantastic mystery that, I, that demands to be solved. This juxtapositioning of Christ and Judas and, uh, and Christ and the rebellious son. So you'll see that application in both of them. And Judas, by the way, John 17, 15 is called what? He's called the evil by God himself. Christ himself calls him the evil thing. The son of perdition, John 17, 12. Jesus is the holy thing, Luke 1, 35. He, the Christ of God, Luke 9, 20. So, all of that is showing up with the rebellious son. And that tells you that the great mystery of the man of sin is here. In the rebellious son. And because that is a blue tassel event, for lack of a better way of describing it, I now know the great mystery of the man of sin is also with the gatherer of wood. That is also a blue tassel event, the first one. And alongside of the great mystery of the man of sin is the greatest mystery in all of creation, and that is the mystery of godliness, 1 Timothy 3.16. Creator God manifested in the flesh. Jesus Christ, Creator God, being the invisible made visible. It's inescapable that these two mysteries are swirling about the rebellious son and the man gathering wood. Okay, therefore, how to solve it, as you know, is figuring out the blue tassels. We went about doing that. We've ended up in Luke 8:41 through 56 last week, where the blue tassels are addressed, and along with that, Matthew 9:20 through 26 and Mark 5:25 through 34. I mentioned Mark 5:25 through 34 in passing because that is where the whole truth shows up. The woman tells the whole truth. That's a very important facet, a very important component, and um, we have to. Remember that as we go through this. So I have the daughter who bled for 12 years and the daughter uh, of the ruler of the synagogue who had died. So I have two daughters now that are inseverable. And both of those daughters have contact with blue tassels. 
and blue tassels are put in place because of the gatherer of wood and the rebellious sun. So I now have my, my circle of information, if you will. I'm beginning to sort my way through the pile. And they are purposely placed together, the two daughters are, by Jesus Christ, by God himself, to provide the meanings of the blue tassels at Numbers 15 and Deuteronomy 22. So I hope you got all of that. And this brings, by the way, understanding to the... I should say, by the way, didn't I? How many times have I said, by the way, so far? By the way. People on the Internet do count because they know there's a prize. Well, they think there's a prize. And there might be a prize... Remember that I have to repeat my clothing, so it's not going to be much of a prize unless I win. <laughs> okay. The two daughters get us to the tassels. The tassels bring us to the understanding of what that wickedness was, what they share, the wood man and the rebel, what they share, what their plan was can figure out who it was they were going to kill. And this is a prime opportunity right now to, to uh, address Leviticus. Remember, Romans is the Leviticus of the New Testament. And if you've been in the news lately at all, you know, as Bill the Cow brought up in the pregame, by the way, Sharon from Texas not to be confused with Sharon from Tennessee, who used to be Sharon from Cincinnati. It's hard for us to keep track here. Please forgive us, Sharons. But Sharon from Texas uh, wanted to hear the pregame, and, and we're really reluctant for anybody to hear the pregame. We, we have, <laughs> we have very, uh, very little control on the pregame, I think, is the problem. <laughs> Not that that's a bad thing, necessarily. Most of the time, it's a great thing. Where was I? Bill the Cow brought up that, boy, Christians are being blamed now for things that are completely disconnected. And they are using Leviticus 18, 19, and 20. And that's three chapters of the Old Testament that are being quoted regularly in light of the recent murders in Florida, as you know. And I don't have time to delve into it today, but I can explain Leviticus 18, 19, and 20. It takes me a little while. It's a complex subject indeed. It requires months of study before conclusions that will possess accuracy are reached. It is rarely the exposition of it is rarely accurate. If you read Leviticus 18, 19, and 20, and, and you have one reading, and you think you have figured anything out, you're wrong. Get used to being wrong when you read once. Now, this is a bring-a-lunch uh, passage, like all of them. Suffice to say that the entire Old Testament has a singular purpose. It has one purpose and one purpose that is so far above all other purposes that you have to get that purpose first or you're dead. I don't know, dead is a bad phrase, okay? You're stopped cold. 
You're never going to go anywhere if you don't focus on the first purpose and that first singular purpose, the primary, the prime, primeval purpose is to testify of Jesus Christ. So whatever you read, Leviticus 18, 19, and 20, you have to find Christ. I read the other day that somebody is publishing a Bible that references about 700 Christ-based verses in the Old Testament. 700. I'm sure he found 692, and he said, I've got to get eight more to get 700. You've got to have the 700 Bible. I applaud the 700. I really do. I recommend the authors, though, try again. Keep looking. 700 is embarrassing. 700 does not begin to approach that which applies to Christ in the Old Testament. There's 23,145 verses that apply to Christ. This is 3%. Good luck with that. Much work remains for these folks. You have a start. I'm going to buy the 500th edition of their book. I'll wait. Anyway, Leviticus 18, 19, 20 is filled to the brim with typologies and portraits of Christ and symbols of Christ. He commands us to find them. As you know, you have to find them first and foremost. Failure to find Christ in the Old Testament is exactly that. It's failure. You'll never figure out Leviticus 18, 19, 20 until first and foremost you have the Christology of it. Once you have that, let me say it another way. It's impossible to correctly discern the meaning of any passage or verse in the Old Testament or the New Testament, frankly, without first identifying the Christology, the Christ-centricity, if you will. Once you have achieved that, then and only then is it time to go on. If you don't do that, you're wasting everybody's time, including yourself. Never have I read, never means never, read an exposition on Leviticus 18, 19, and 20 by anyone, scholar or atheist, that follows this John 5:39 methodology, which is find Christ first, explain the Christology. For some reason, Leviticus doesn't seem to inspire that. Anyway, the remaining central element or component that is also critical to understanding Leviticus 18, 19, and 20 is the identification of Moloch. Once you have Christ, now you can move to Moloch. Moloch is identified in Leviticus 18.21, Leviticus 22, Leviticus 23, Leviticus 24, Leviticus 25, Jeremiah 32 through 35, and it's really obvious who Moloch is and what Moloch does. Moloch cannot be separated from, is marinated in the blood of children. Child sacrifice, hands that shed innocent blood, Proverbs 6.17. That's the epicenter, the non-Christ epicenter 
of Leviticus 18, 19, and 20. The grave, great evil that God is opposing is Moloch. And Israel is not going to be allowed to do this. He is not going to allow Israel to kill their children and sacrifice them to Moloch. God will put to death all who sacrifice children to Moloch. That's what it's about. Now, what do most people think it's about? They don't think it's about Moloch. They think it's about sexual... What's the word I want here to be politically correct? Perversion. That's certainly here. But it's about Moloch. You need to know that. Those being described in Leviticus 18 and 19 and 20 were doing something of great evil that is associated with Moloch specifically and exactly. Uh, they are described. So let me repeat that. Those doing the Moloch evil are described for us. Eventually, Josiah rises up and he destroys their remnant in 2 Kings 23. Josiah rids Israel of the priests of Moloch. And for that, Josiah is greatly honored. No one turned his heart more towards God than Josiah. But note that the priests of Moloch were inside of Israel and identified in Leviticus 18, 19, and 20. And I submit the priests of Moloch also controlled Sodom. I think it's the same thing, different day. So who were they? How did they infiltrate Israel? Where did they come from? Were they Jews? 18, 19, and 20 of Leviticus. What actions identified them as religious murderers of children? You're going to find a list. Leviticus provides a list. You'll notice that God has lots of lists. Start with what I just told you, and Leviticus 18, 19, and 20 begins to unfold, and you will not have a misunderstanding of it. Remember, God will destroy those who shed the blood of children. This is the context of these passages, and it also relates to the blue tassels. Okay? Now, back to the blue tassels. Need to read more about the two daughters and their contact with the blue tassels. We last left off with Luke 8, 41 through 56. The woman bleeding for 12 years, she's disguised. She doesn't want anyone to know who she is. Why not? She's going through a multitude. She's desperate. She knows, and we'll read it again today, if I just touch that blue tassel. All I got to do. She knows about the blue tassels. She can't know about the blue tassels without knowing about the rebellious son and the gatherer of wood and, frankly, Moloch. But I'm leaping ahead there. And then I have the 12-year-old dead daughter who is one of the two 12 daughters. She's the, she's the dead daughter of the ruler of the synagogue. This is the ruler of the synagogue. She's dead, wrapped in the talit of Christ and his blue tassels. So I have those two women. 
Obviously, these two daughters connect, again, let me repeat it, to the gatherer and the rebel, or the rebellious son. The presence of the blue tassels makes this a certainty. Am I saying blue tassels enough? I'm trying to. And to repeat, the blue tassels help you understand Leviticus 18, 19, and 20. God, he says, he says, I hate. Now, when you hear God say hate, it isn't the same as our hate. His hate is righteous, sinless hate. Our hate is selfish, wicked hate. So it's not the same. Don't anthropomorphize. Don't put your hate onto God and think it's the same. It's not the same. His is goodness. God says he hates Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. That on board. Somewhere. That figures into this equation today. He defines as an abomination, as detestable, Hands that shed innocent blood. Tells you that as clear as a bell, as most as he can, as obvious as he can. And note that immediately prior to Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, which is a list of things he hates. They will call it the seven things that are abominations to God. But note the one that's right in the, the, that is the central element. Hands that shed innocent blood. But after that list, so I'm sorry, immediately prior to this list of the seven things that God detests is the list is also I got this incredible list, Proverbs six sixteen through nineteen. He hates hands that shed innocent blood. He hates killing children. Hates it. And we don't understand how he defines what he means by hate, but he hates it. We'll go from there. Prior to him saying that, he has another list. That's a list of abominations and detestable things. And There's a list before that. I have two lists. Back-to-back lists. I can't say lists because I have a lisp. That's part of the problem. (laughs) I can't get out of my head every time I admit that I have a speech impediment. The man that was ruthlessly beating me at the game of look. As I couldn't say look. And every time I failed to say it, I was punished by losing a card. I hope that man got some kind of disease of the feet. <laughs> That's what we called teaching in those days. Now, there's a commercial on TV that makes me laugh. Uh, Jim Gaffigan makes fun of the person who beat me at that game relentlessly for years. Okay, two years. In Whittier, Alaska... He was the uh, speech articulation professional. And he tormented me, but Gaffigan made that joke about how it's good for him to make his kids lose at things. He's mocking that man. I hope that man noticed that. Okay. There's this list 
also of the characteristics of the wicked or the worthless man. So I'm going to have to take off some stuff here. No, I don't want to yet. The worthless man, the word is Belial. You've had this lecture before, and you will know that Belial is not a name of a man. It is the name of Satan. God calls the man, the worthless man, the wicked man that is prior to the abomination list, the detestable list, Proverbs 6, 12 through 15. He calls that man the man of Belial or the man of Satan. And he has a list of that man's characteristics that you can now compare to the list of detestable things. The wicked man of Proverbs 6, 12 is the man of Satan. So who is the man of Satan? That is clearly, again, an antichrist <coughs> delineation, appellation, if you will. The man of Satan is described, and we have a list, uh, a list number one, as opposed to list number two that follows it. Obviously, and I've said so many times in my so-called career, that the man of Belial is the antichrist. It is not even, again, in controversy. And his list, the Antichrist list, and the list of the seven things that are abominations to our Creator God are now interwoven together and they are codependent. And that becomes very important. And I hope I'm repeating list enough, too. So, list and tassels. Saying it over and over again. Tassels, lists. Tassels, lists. This is the 12-pound sledgehammer approach to teaching case you were wondering. In other words, the man of Belial, the wicked man, will do what? He will shed the blood of innocent children. He will sacrifice them to Moloch. It's what he will do. He will kill children. So, ask the obvious question now. Why will he kill children? Why does the Antichrist, why does the man of Satan, why does Moloch want to kill children? Think of that while I keep moving. That's an important thing to solve. He has lots of options. By the way, who, uh, who is prominent in Scripture for killing children? Herod. So now you have Herod and the man of Belial and Moloch to tie together. Why do the wicked love to kill children? The man of Belial will have a perverse mouth, as God defines perverse, Proverbs says, and will lie. What will he lie about? Who will he lie about? Lie for what purpose? What is the ultimate end, the goal of the lie, killing children? Hopefully you're ahead of me and you've deduced the relationship between the man of Belial and Moloch and the gatherer of wood and the rebellious son. The man of Belial is the Antichrist, the gatherer of wood and the rebellious son are men who were employing the methods of the Antichrist that is listed in Proverbs 6, uh, 1 through 19. And you can see how it all fits together. I'm going to say to you that the rebellious son and the men and the uh, gatherer wood uh, were priests, religious men. 
The gatherer would had an insidious plan. Let me ask again. What do you want the wood for? The rebellious son, likewise, was intending to activate the evil, as God calls it. What was the evil? Okay, got all of that? Now, back we go to the two dogs. We have to go fast now. I should say to the Internet folks, uh, you are absolutely justified in worrying about me. I've had some wonderful people in Pennsylvania and Texas, right, and they're worried about me because I fall off of ladders a lot. Repeatedly, uh, I operate, in case you're wondering, without a net. So far, America's got talent. By the way, there are no American judges on America's Got Talent, and I don't think there's any American contestants, frankly, but I haven't looked that carefully. My point is that they haven't called. As good as it is that I am falling off of ladders, uh, I am doing better. I'm making Lori climb the ladders now, and that seems to be... That was not just funny, but true. That's what made it funny. Okay, now back to the two daughters. Uh, we should gather these elements. I can't read it in no time, but this is the Luke 41, 8, 41 through 56. Let me check the time. Yes, I'm right. There hardly is any time. But it starts out with, Behold, a man came. If you weren't here last week, it's in the bulletin. You can read along with me. Behold, a man came. Something is incredible about this man who came. What's incredible about the man? It tells you what's incredible. He is the ruler of the synagogue, not a ruler. He is the ruler, and he came to Christ. That is absolutely amazing. And he had a 12-year-old Dead daughter. Now, it'll say dying, and we'll, we'll handle the time frame here as we go on. He has a dead daughter, and she's 12. She's one of the two 12 daughters, right? And then a multitude had thronged Christ. So there's a multitude here, and they are pushing up against him and pressing. And a 12-year, a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. So and, I, and by the way, Christ calls her a daughter. So a woman, daughter. I have the two daughters. Am I repeating this enough? The sledgehammer method. She comes from behind. She's bleeding. And she's been bleeding for a 12. I have a 12 and I have a 12. Not coincidental. And she comes up from behind. So she's behind Christ. This is her move. She's not going to let him see her coming. Who is she coming after? Omniscient God. If your plan is to sneak up on God, good luck with that. <coughs> but she's decided to come up from behind. And her whole plan is to get a hold of that blue tassel. Got to have it. We'll cover it in a minute. What she's thinking. She's after the blue tassels. And as soon as she touches it, what happens to her? That's not the behold. The behold is that ruler. 
Keep that in mind. As soon as she touches the blue tassels, something happens that she knows is going to happen. Bleeding stops. And then omniscient God asks this incredible, mysterious question, Who touched me? The creator of time asks that. Does he know? Please say yes. Then he says something else incredibly mysterious that we must solve. Power came out of me. If you think he's standing there, please, please, please. I don't want to make fun of you. Okay, maybe I do a little bit. If you think that he's going there going, oh, somebody touched me. I have felt power go out of me. Maybe I got goosebumps or whatever. If that's what you're thinking, Try again. Come up with a Christ-honoring view. Is that the most common view? Yes. Is it Christ-honoring? No. Therefore, it cannot be right. And then, after he says those mysterious things, the woman comes out. And she is, got, she is afraid. Fear and trembling. And she falls down. At his feet, and what is she expecting? Why is she afraid? She is afraid of what? She's afraid of the blood starting again this time from something else. Blunt force trauma. Why is she afraid of that? And she tells, I'm going to add this part, this is the Mark 5.33 part. She tells the whole truth. So I have this tremendous confession here. How long did it take? She is afraid. She's trembling. She's falling down. She confesses the whole truth, which asks the question, obviously, to repeat that part again. What is the whole truth? And he calls her daughter. Christ does. God does. He says, daughter, your faith has cleansed you. Go in peace. Someone then comes up. Always note when the Bible says, someone says, you'll see it in James all the time, someone says, someone says. Usually when someone says something in the Bible, especially the New Testament, it almost always is a Pharisee. Going to be one again right here. Someone says to the ruler, uh, your daughter is dead, don't bother the teacher. Okay, got it? Good. Now, let's let add Matthew 9, 18 through 26. And I will read it very quickly in order for us to all get to the hot dogs. When he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him. What do we know about the ruler? Who is he? He's the ruler of the synagogue. And what is he doing, the ruler of the synagogue? What is he doing? It's a behold. He's worshipping who? Christ, what is he just saying about Christ? How's that going over? How's his job doing now? Is he up for promotion? Behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. Notice that he's thinking the same way as the woman. The woman says, I just touched the Talit. Bleeding's going to stop. 
He's saying, come and touch my daughter. <coughs> She's going to be resurrected. So Jesus arose and followed him. And so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment, the talit. And for that, for she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around and when he saw her, he said, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. Now you've got to go to Luke and you have to go to Mark to find the rest of the story, the whole truth, if you will. When Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, who are these people? Same as Lazarus, right? He said to them, make room for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they ridiculed him, which is a very bad plan, making fun of God. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and looked and took her by the hand and the girl arose. As you remember from last week, he said, Talitha. He referenced his Talit. He wrapped her in the Talit like Elijah. We'll get to that. And he raised her, he raised the talit. Talit arise, a talitha arise, okay? Behold, the ruler worships Christ. That is a great behold. This is the leader, the ruler of the synagogue. He's a Pharisee, a Levite, and he now says Christ is God and Christ can raise the dead in spite of what the Sadducees would say. That's a big wow. My daughter is dead. The ruler knew his daughter was dead. Now, compare that to the man who comes up and says in Mark, and uh, do not trouble, is it in Ma- where is it? I'm going to make sure. I think it might be in Luke. It's in Luke. Luke. Compare that to the man who came and said, don't trouble God. The ruler knew his situation. The ruler knew that he needed his daughter to be resurrected. Again, we're going to have to reconcile Matthew 9, Mark 5, and Luke 8 in order to correctly understand exactly how it went, what order it was in. For today, there's two things that are important. The bleeding stopped and the child resurrected upon the touch of the blue tassels. The woman knew the blue tassels would stop her bleeding. I asked last week, how did she know that? She had a fundamental understanding of what that blue tassel means. She had to know whose blue tassel it needed to be. And the ruler came to have Christ resurrect his daughter. And again, Christ utilized the blue tassels. Someone from the ruler's house said, Ah, she's dead. Don't bother Christ. Don't trouble God. I had a bunch of flute players ridiculing Christ. You probably discerned the flute players are the professional mourners. They are paid to assemble at the deaths of the prominent. Who pays them? Well, the church staff. Whenever somebody dies that's prominent, church staff shows up with flutes. And they mourn and wail, make lots of noise. They wail and weep. And their whole purpose, the primary purpose, is to reinforce the notion that physical death is unresolvable. It's a hopeless circumstance. That's why they're mourning. 
That's why we're not supposed to do it. Will we do it? Yes. It's sad. Mourn the separation, not the death. So again, who hired the flute players? Same one that said, don't bother the teacher. Obviously, the ruler father, the great behold, is he figured out, the ruler of the synagogue figured out, I just got to get this guy anywhere near my daughter. And she's going to live. And this is God. This is a Nicodemus type thought. He worships Christ in front of a multitude. He's the ruler of the synagogue. His job security is not good. But he didn't care, did he? He's after his daughter to be lived, to live. And behold, this worshiping of Christ in front of the multitude, he declares Christ to be God. And the flute players know it. Flute players are in direct opposition to Christ. I hope you can see that. They declare death to be irreversible. They declare death to be the most powerful, uh, uh, if you will, uh, I don't know what to call it, the most, the power that cannot be overcome. And Christ says now, this is a temporary physical state, and they ridicule him. This is a permanent, irreversible state, they say. Christ says, no. It's like sleep. She's 12. She's saved on the basis of being 12. This is not a big deal. So I have a clash of absolute opposites here. The mourning professional whalers who declare death to be a hopeless and therefore life to be purposeless. And Christ who says, I am the life and I am God. And so, if you want to think of it as a gunfight or a boxing match or a jousting match or arm wrestling, whatever you want to do that makes you imagine it, I have the two yes, uh, against each other, absolute total opposites, life and death, and Christ prevails, duh. Uh, tip of the day. Always bet on omnipotence. Anyway, the ruler father figured out that Christ was God and in front of the multitude made it plain that he believed this to be so. He confessed in front of a throng, thousands of people, that this is God. This is the one I am worshiping. He confessed his belief. Did he keep his job? I don't think he did. Did he care? I know he didn't care. That woman also confesses. I have two people that confess the truth, right? The bleeding woman believed that if she had grasped the blue tassel, she would live, and she was right. And she confessed the whole truth, and she's instantly made clean. Well, she's no longer unclean. And I've always wondered about this, and I'm not alone. Okay, maybe I am alone in some respects. My first wondering was always about the people here. I have a ruler father. This is a Father's Day sermon. Did you notice that? I, I deserve congratulations. <laughs> I have the ruler father. I have the bleeding woman. I have the someone who says. I have the mother. I have the flute player. I have a 12-year-old daughter. I have Peter, James, and John. I want to know why no one said I touched him. 
No one said I touched him. He says they denied it. We didn't touch you. None of us touched you. He asked, who touched me? Everybody said, well, we all touched you. That's not what it says. They denied touching me. I felt power going up. Somebody intentionally touched him for a purpose. That's what he's asking. Who intentionally touched me? My talit, my blue tassels. Who grabbed? He knew. He wanted to point out something, didn't he? So, I have everyone there in the multitude. I have the power that went out from God. you got to get your head around that. Is it healing power or is it salvation power? You decide, is there a difference? Why did Christ say this? Somebody touched me, for I perceived power going out of me. This is a very, very mysterious statement from the Creator of all things. Did I say very enough? What I want to know, though, is did the bleeding woman know the ruler father? What's the likelihood she knew him? This is the ruler of the synagogue. Did she know the ruler father? Who didn't know the ruler father? Did he, the ruler father, know the bleeding woman? Did God have two people that knew each other come to him at the same time? Or is this just a couple of people? Big coincidence. It can't be disputed that the two daughters are really one daughter. They are related. There's something about the two of them that is extraordinary. We have to begin to look at them. And this whole truth that this woman had to confess, that whole truth caused her to bleed for 12 years. She's been bleeding for 12 years. Uncoincidentally, Notice how I said that. That 12 years is the exact same time this 12-year-old daughter has been alive. Did the bleeding of the woman coincide with the birth of the daughter, the 12-year-old? What do you think? I'll ask it a different way. Did the stopping of the bleeding coincide with the resurrection of the daughter? Well, yeah. Did the bleeding start the birth of the daughter. Why wouldn't I be consider that they began simultaneously? Why was the bleeding woman afraid to be known to the multitude? She was afraid. She knew Christ could stop the bleeding. She thought she could sneak in and no one would catch her. God made sure that she was caught. What element in her secret, the whole truth, would make her afraid? It reminds me of John 8. I have a bunch of people surrounding a woman in a lot of trouble. And Christ saves her too. Not going to kill you today. Next week, we will continue to pick it apart.